Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist with me, Simon Whistler. This one is all about the dating game killer, which I definitely heard of, maybe you've heard of it as well. It really got me thinking, in 10 years or something, The Casual Criminalist, we're definitely going to be covering, like, and it's really grim to think about, but there's definitely going to be Tinder serial killers, there's going to be like Uber serial killers, Uber Eats serial killers, because... Now we just get in. I know, I know Uber's safe or anything. Like, all allegedly, please don't sue me, Uber. But it's like, I mean, we're just getting into cars with strangers a lot, which is the sort of thing we're told not to do as kids. And I love Uber. I use it all the time. But there's definitely going to be Uber serial killers, right? There probably are already. And we just... This is a really grim topic. Uh, well, this is the casual criminals. Grim is what you're here for. Should we just crack on? What happens here, of course, is a Callum has prepared me a script. I have no idea other than vague awareness of the dating game killer from like pop culture knowledge and stuff. I don't really know what this is about. Callum has written it for me. I'm going to read it live right here. I mean, this isn't live. It's obviously edited because there are effects and music and all of that sort of stuff. But I'm going to read it. Maybe add some comments. This is a very heavy script. This could be a long episode. Let's jump in. How's your love life? Good, I hope. But if not, hang in there. It'll all work out someday. I know it's not easy to be single in the 21st century, especially for women. The modern dating scene can be a nightmare of unsolicited aubergine emoji. Uh, aubergine? Aubergine? How do you even say that word? That's a very common word that I should know how to pronounce. Aubergine. Aubergine. Emojis, or eggplant, I think as Americans might call it. And obnoxious pickup artist tactics. What happened to the good old-fashioned days of chivalrous, silver-tongued gentlemen? Well, let's not be so naive. Fans of true crime are well aware that romance in the days gone in days gone by was just as a minefield of creeps and freaks as it is today. We know that stranger danger has always existed, no matter how much you might trust someone, you can never really be sure that you know them. This kind of risk is multiplied when you're not hiding behind a phone screen, safely swiping away all the cannibals and kidnappers of the world. How do you know if you're swiping them away, though? It's not like... I don't know, I've been married for the better part of a decade. Um, no, I haven't been married for the better... I've been in a relationship for the better part of a decade and married for several years. I don't know what Tinder looks like, but in your profile, you're not going to be writing like, Hey, my name's Simon. Interests. Cannibalism. Murder. <laughs> It's just not going to go there. Singles in past decades had to take radical steps like leaving their houses and interacting with other humans in person. It sounds awful. Uh, Callum and I are on the same page on that one. After I talk you through today's case, I'm sure you'll agree. You'll be praying that you get to stay curled up at home, safe and alone forever. The story starts in the 1970s in California, the stomping ground of a young fashion photographer who was reportedly a big hit with the ladies. His objective, however, was never to find love. This Romeo had far darker motives in mind. I don't think we should call him Romeo. <laughs> That's like way too nice. And it reminds me of Leonardo Di Leonardo DiCaprio played Romeo in that in that movie, right? Where they kind of modernized Shakespeare, but did they not change the language? It was weird. Josh, thou art deceived. I haven't seen that movie in 20 years. Longer than that. The reason his story stands out uh, against the rest is that, unlike the others, we can actually watch this silver-tongued sociopath at work. I mean, for obvious reasons, we don't have Ted Bundy's Tinder profile or Dharma's Plenty of Fish chat logs. That, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of glad we don't. I'm sure it would be terribly disturbing. For today's case, though, we have a media relic from a long-forgotten format, the primetime TV dating show. That piece of vintage TV is our entry point into the horrific story of Rodney Arcala 
the dating game killer. I've never seen the dating game. When I was growing up in the UK, we had a TV show called... Was it? It was maybe Blind Date, although I feel that wasn't it. It was with a woman called Scylla Black, who is uh, quite a character. Aren't teenagers weird? And I guess maybe this could be the same concept. There's like three dudes and they sit on chairs and there's a woman behind a screen and they get to ask questions of each other and then they go on a date to get... I, TV, this was weak. TV back in the day was weak. The dating game scene. Let me set the scene for you. Sparkling curtains open to reveal a gaudy orange and white TV set plastered with retro flower patterns. The whole thing is so 1970s it makes me sick. So begins tonight's primetime episode of The Dating... This was a primetime TV show. I'm not sure if Scylla Black's Blind Date or whatever it was called was primetime. I somehow doubt it, but then I I do forget the TV was terrible in the past and we just had to make do with what we had. (laughs) Uh, so begins tonight's primetime episode of The Dating Game, a campy game show in which a single woman has the choice of three bachelors for an all-expenses-paid date. This sounds like exactly what I was talking about, so I- I've-, I've seen the British equivalent of this. The catch is that she can't see what they look like. All she has to go on are the answers to three questions chosen by her. If that sounds familiar to UK listeners, you're probably thinking of Blind Date, the syndicated UK version hosted by Scylla Black. Oh, and she's dead. Callum writes, long may she rest in peace. I didn't know she was dead. Well, I am glad. I mean, I'm not glad that Scylla Black is dead, obviously. But I am glad that I got the name of her TV show right. That was good. The US version featured the same, sometimes cheeky, sometimes cringy interactions. Those with a weak tolerance for social discomfort should probably give any repeats a miss, especially this episode, which aired September the 17th, 1978. That's because this one was different. It lives on in infamy because of Bachelor Number 1, whose answers to the innuendo-laced questions are retrospectively much more sinister than any viewers would have guessed at the time. Oh, God. Also, I don't know. I was way too young watching blind date with Scylla Black because I'm sure there were loads of innuendos and stuff, but I don't remember getting any of them. <laughs> when the stage rotated to reveal the three contestants to the audience, all they saw on the first chair was a normal enough guy, quite tall, tanned, looking a bit like a poor man's widow Yankovic. Hello! Honestly, I'm not quite sure why he's often described as handsome. The hippie hair and beady eyes really aren't doing it for me. Host Jim Lang introduced him as a successful photographer and a fan of extreme sports, but this bachelor had a few more major interests which he didn't disclose to the production staff. We'll be going plenty in depth on those over the next hour or so. It's information which I'm sure Bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw wishes she had when she stepped on stage ready to choose her date. But all she had to go on were these three questions. Let's have a listen. Bachelor number one. Yes. What's your best time? The best time is at night. Nighttime. Why do you say that? Because that's the only time there is. The only time? What's wrong with the morning, afternoon? Well, they're okay, but nighttime's when it really gets good. Alright, so it's a bit of an awkward start, but that's to be expected when two total, total strangers have to start flirting with each other in front of an audience of millions. The next question, though, is when things start to get really uncomfortable for multiple reasons. I'm a drama teacher, and I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one. You're a dirty old man. Take it. 
Come on, over here. <laughs> okay, now this show hasn't aged particularly well. Yeah, that's true, Callan. You can hear the audience laughing because the tinge of retro sex pest awfulness in the answer was par for the course back then. But looking back, it's a bit not on, given the wider context. It's a hundred times worse. Before I elaborate on that, there's just one more answer that we have to give a listen to. So let's brace ourselves, and here's the clip. Bachelor number one, I am serving you for dinner. Oh. <laughs> what are you called... And what do you look like? I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Uh, can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. Okay, it's super weird. Anyway, Callum says, Jesus, call me a prude, but this is not my cup of tea. It's the carry-on camping primetime TV equivalent of a dick pic. Let's just take a second to deconstruct that little exchange. Oh, do we have to? This is particularly grim, especially if you have any familiarity with what is about to happen later in today's episode. Okay, bananas are phallic. Very clever, number one. But peel me? That's the sort of chat-up line only a serial killer could find arousing. However, I assume that the audience there must have some big, like, laugh and applause sign because they are laughing and applauding. And it's not that funny. It's just creepy and weird. Amazingly, though, Bachelor Number One's banana-based patter won Cheryl over. I guess the bar was pretty low back then, and the stage rotated to reveal Rodney Arcala, tall, dark, and supposedly handsome. She was thrilled with her pick. The two listened as the host revealed the date they'd be sharing a tennis lesson, followed by a trip to the Magic Mountain theme park. That is extremely overly wholesome. This was back in the day, though. Another perfect match made. Job well done. Once the couple were clear of the cameras and spotlights, however, things started to sour. Backstage, Alcala began giving off some decidedly creepy vibes. Dude, the vibes were already creepy, so they must... <laughs> it got so bad that Cheryl started to come round to my way of thinking. She had actually made a severely bad decision. Good news, Cheryl. You can still back out. Unless you're contractually obliged to. But then, I mean, I'd still back out. He sounds scary. Or uh, hopefully this camera's going on this day with you? Bachelor number one had made a similar impression upon the producers of the show a few weeks prior, but against their better judgment, they decided to put him on the air anyway. Cheryl wasn't quite so nonchalant with her safety. She decided to opt out of the date altogether and never saw her jilted would-be lover ever again. Cheryl, I get the feeling that you made a very smart decision. It was probably the best choice she ever made in her life. <laughs> Some foreshadowing there. 2010 court scene snapshot. See, Bachelor Number One would have plenty more airtime over the following decades, but for very different reasons. Fast forward 32 years, and we see him again. His trademark long, wavy, somewhat pubic hair is now even more scraggly and grayed. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit with his hands cuffed behind his back. It's not a cheeky camp game show this time round. This is Courthouse TV, and Rodney Arcala isn't having quite the same success here that he had it back in 1978. In fact, he's being sentenced to death. Oh, yeah, no, that is that is rather different, isn't it? <laughs> the judge gives an impassioned condemnation of the man while onlookers weep and quietly celebrate the impending end of his life. So, what has he done to deserve their hatred, besides his cringy, cringy chat-up lines? To answer that, we'll get right back to the start of his story. One of the bloodiest and most depressing true crime tales in American history. And then Callum here says, like, that, you know, impending end of his life. 
And it's like, well, if that's when he's getting sentenced to death, it's going to be years, maybe even decades, before he's actually executed because there are so many appeals. Well, we'll get into all of that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's jump into backgrounds. Ronnie Arcala was born in San Antonio, Texas in August 1943. When the boy was about eight years old, the Arcalas relocated to Mexico, where Mr. Arcala decided to go out for a pack of cigarettes and never returned. After that, Arcala, his siblings, and their mother decided to head back to America and settle down in L.A. At just 17 years old, he decided to enter military service with the army. This was well into the years of the Vietnam War, but Arcala wasn't off hunting down Charlie from a chopper. He served as an administrator clerk in the states safe and sound just short of five years into his service he had a nervous breakdown presumably from all that intense stamping and filing you weren't there man Akala went AWOL from his base and hitchhiked all the way back to his family home. That was, of course, the first place the army went looking for him. Your criminal career is off to a AWOL's a crime, right? Yeah. Your criminal career is off to a brilliant start, Rodney. He managed to avoid any severe punishments for abandoning his post because a psychological evaluation resulted in a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. He was discharged on medical grounds and found himself out of work. So he did the only thing someone with, a, with limited prospects and antisocial tendencies can do. He went to art school. I'm only joking. Please don't flood my, don't flood my inbox. That's Callum's joke. Alcala studied fine arts at the University of California, Los Angeles, graduate, graduating in 1968. He's known to have repeatedly boasted about his genius IQ throughout his life, although by the time we're finished, that'll seem pretty dubious. Keep it in mind as we go along. Yeah, he went AWOL and he just went home to his house. Oh, although he did have, you know, a mental condition, so, but I mean... Was he immense or anything? Did he have any proof of this genius IQ? After graduating, he decided it was time for a change. A very fast, out-of-the-blue change of coasts, he relocated to New York and enrolled at New York University. During his time there, he took film classes taught by Roman Polanski, who was basically the poster boy of 1970s sex crime terribleness. Consider that a touch of foreshadowing. Plenty of that in today's episode, Callum. But when Polanski, future fugitive pedophile, let's call him what he is, <laughs> allegedly, looked at his class register, he wouldn't have seen the name Rodney Arcala listed. That's because the subject of today's story was actually enrolled under a false name, John Berger. Why might that have been? First known crime. Well, let's jump back to California just a few weeks earlier. A man was driving down a street in Hollywood when he witnessed something that sent his alarm bells ringing like hell. A wavy-haired man with decidedly bad vibes was speaking to a young girl on the sidewalk. She was eight-year-old Tally Shapiro, and he was, well, I'm sure you can guess. Oh, no, so this guy was killing kids as well? I didn't know that. That could be grim. I mean, if he is, that's horribly grim. Or maybe he's, he's just talking to her. I get the feeling he's not, because he's a psycho. <laughs> the driver watched as the man beckoned the girl into his car and decided to follow. Whoever you are, dude, in the car, you are a hero. When he saw the pair step out and head into an apartment, he wisely chose to call the police. Patting his pockets for his cell phone, he realized they wouldn't really be a thing for a decade yet. So he drove to the nearest payphone. This guy is a bit of a legend. Uh, the other, I got a, a personal story. A friend of mine, he was in the in the shopping center, a mall, as Americans might call it, and his daughter, who's I think three years old maybe just absolutely starts having a hissy fit just he says just for no reason she's just had enough and she starts absolutely crying and just going nuts and he's like yeah so i have to carry her home and he lives next to the shopping mall so he picks her up and he carries her home 
and the police come to his house and someone had called the police and had followed him called the police just in case like uh he'd kidnapped a girl and he was like this was super weird but also awesome at the same time and i'm like that is, as someone who has a one-year-old daughter it's pretty awesome that someone would do that and i was like that that's really cool but also dude that's intense chris camacho was the responding officer that day i want to know about the, the driver i want to give him credit he approached the front door of the apartment and announced himself. Alcala leaned out of a side window and said that he was in the middle of showering. Kamasha gave him 10 seconds to open the door before kicking it in and rushing through. <laughs> Legend. Tally Shapiro lay on the kitchen floor, beaten and bloodied. She had been raped and hit repeatedly with a steel bar, which now lay across her neck. At first, Kamasha believed she was dead. The amount of blood loss seemed more than any little girl could possibly survive. As he later put it, the image will be with me forever. We could see in the kitchen there was a body on the floor. A lot of blood. We all thought she was dead. Wow, so this guy, I mean, the driver, he he probably, he definitely saved her life. I'm assuming she survives because that bar is probably going to, like, cause her to die. Um, just a shame he didn't, you know, if cell phones were around back then, he'd just made the call, the police might have got there faster, and things would have been better. Batali was a fighter, it seems. She suddenly coughed, and Officer Camacho did everything he could to stabilize her. Thankfully, he was successful. Tali was transported to a hospital in her comatose state, but made a full recovery over the next few days. She claimed to have no memory of her time inside the apartment, which is probably for the best, all things considered. What about Alcala? Well, he used that 10-second warning to make a break for it out of the back of the house. Detectives found his university ID inside, and the FBI issued a warrant for his arrest. It took a further three years before he made the leap onto their most wanted list, by which point he was safe and sound on the opposite side of the country why should he be safe and sound on the opposite side of the country they know who he is i mean was this just something in the past you could just get a new id much easier i don't know how do you even do that it's like maybe if you're like planning crimes you're like i'm gonna work out how to change my identity but i'd have no idea how to do that <laughs> so how did akala pass the time during his new life on the lamb well, we already know he was enrolled in film school, but his other activities will probably make you feel extremely uncomfortable given that last development. Yeah, no shit. During a summer break, Arcala, now in his mid-twenties, landed a job as a counselor at an all-girls arts camp in New Hampshire. Apparently, the guys running background tech checks in those days just made sure that the new hires pinky promised that they weren't psychopaths and left it that. The lack of any national crime re- criminal register didn't exactly help matters. It's insane that there wasn't a criminal register back in... What was this? The 1970s? 1980s? What was the date on this? Anyway, whatever it is, it's wild. And also, when you go to do a background check on a dude, isn't it like a bit suspicious when he doesn't have a background? It's like he just made this new character up. You don't want to get a reference? Maybe two? Maybe a police background check? I've had to do police background checks. What did I have to do a police background check for? I can't even remember what it was, but it wasn't even important. Again, the name Alcala used to get the gig wasn't his own, and it wasn't John Berger either. He decided he wanted to invent another fake identity in case he needed to flee from here as well. This new alias was John Berger. That's genius-level IQ at play there for sure. Despite such masterstrokes of deception, Alcala's time as a free man was running out. One day, a couple of the children he was charged to protect noticed Mr. Berger's face on an FBI wanted poster. Hardly what you need when you're stranded in the middle of a forest with that guy. Also, what's an FBI poster doing in the middle of a forest? The feds promptly showed up before Alcala could strike again and dragged him off to jail. Good. But I, the fact that, you know, they knew he was, he should be in prison for the rest of his life for his crimes. So how did he get to commit more crimes? Because look how thick this script is. What has gone on, justice system? 
Now, looking at the time bar on this episode, you might have expected another lucky escape for Arcala just then. Surely this must be the end of the story, right? It should be. The guy was caught red-handed trying to kill a kid for Christ's sake. But unfortunately, Akala never felt the full weight of all the charges stacked up against him. Namely, rape, attempted murder, and child molestation. The whole scumbag bingo card. In the end, only the last three charges stuck. The reason was that Tally's family had since relocated to Mexico and refused to let their daughter testify in an attempt to protect her from the trauma. Fair, but this guy needs to go to prison forever! Without that key testimony, the prosecution's case was looking a lot shakier than they would have liked. Rather than risk a not guilty verdict, they gave Arcala a plea deal, allowing him to go down on only a child molestation conviction. Or oh, please go to jail for a really long time at least. Come on. Come on. This meant only a fraction of the punishment he was really due. In prison, he made an effort to put on a show of rehabilitation, attending educational programs, reading studiously, and being an all-round model prisoner. This led to his parole in August 1974 after 36 months? What the hell, justice system? This is not right. <laughs> he spent three years in prison, for, even if it's just for child molestation and not the whole rape and attempted murder thing. That's still outrageous. If that has got you worked up, <laughs> Callum, how did you know? <laughs> I have to warn you, it doesn't get any prettier from here, oh dear. Despite Akala's efforts to prove his reformation in prison, he didn't display quite the same progress on the outside. Within two months of regaining his freedom, he had violated his parole, and not some minor technical violation either. Akala was caught giving marijuana, or the ganja, as the cool kids call it, to a 13-year-old girl. Dude, I don't think anyone... I can't... the ganja? <laughs> Just call it weed. <laughs> when the park ranger... What's the other one? Uh, God's lettuce. <laughs> I like that one. When the park ranger who caught him in the act interviewed the girl, she told them Arcala had kidnapped her. That was never proven, but the parole violation was undeniable. Giving weed to teens is highly illegal. In case you're not aware, uh, I could have guessed, even in California, right? <laughs> Where it's, I mean, this is the 1970s. Had the war on drugs kicked off? When was Nixon? Oh, whatever. He went back to prison for a further two years after less than eight weeks outside. Good. So we know that Arcala wasn't interested in turning over a new leaf. Any chance he had of gaining a sliver of sympathy from us is long gone. It was it was long gone from right at the beginning, where he was a weirdo on the dating game. Peel me. Don't be like that. Astonishingly, though, his dark past had very little effect on his life after getting out of prison. We already know that 1970s background checks were basically non-existent, which is how he was able to become a typesetter with the LA Times in 1977. To his credit, his resume was connected to headline news, but in all of the wrong ways. I mean, the paper he worked at was knee-deep in coverage of the exact sort of crimes he had previously committed. This was the gruesome heyday of serial killers. The Hillside Strangler was running amok in California while the son of Sam plied his trade on the East Coast, and the nation watched as Ted Bundy's trial began to unfold in Colorado. For a young serial killer, at the start of his career, times were good. Um... I understand there were no background checks and stuff, but how do you get a job at the LA Times when you've been in prison for molesting a child and then violating your parole for selling weed to children and then going back to prison for two years? I don't understand how they... Isn't that information in some sort of database that someone can look at? Amazingly, Arcala was even interviewed as a potential suspect for the Hillside Strangler while he was working at the paper. Really, though, those crimes were committed by cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo 
Bo- Bo- Bono Jr. And by the way, that may be a spoiler for a future episode, so please forget what I just said instantly. All that matters is that it wasn't Arkala. That's not to say that our guy wasn't strangling people on hillsides, however. He just wasn't that particular hillside strangler. Oh, that's dark. And yes, I did say that this was the start of his criminal career, because unfortunately, by the mid-1970s, the bulk of Arkala's mis- misdeeds were yet to come. It was during this time that he established the modus operandi, which would cement his dubious reputation as a repulsive rogue. Using his artsy credentials, he convinced women that he was a big-time fashion photographer who could help them be recognized by the modeling industry. I guess today, if this happens, you're like, you're a weirdo. <laughs> Unless you're actually an official photographer, and they must, have to, they must probably struggle with this connotation. Anyway, he would charm his marks with that silver tongue of his. I'm called the banana, peel me. Oh, God, <laughs> Callum, no. And tell them that he wanted some photos for them of them for a competition. He did this to hundreds of young women, but it's worth mentioning that it didn't necessarily mean they all met a horrible end. We'll never know exactly how many of the women in Alcala's portfolio died at his hands, but there are a few that we can verify beyond doubt. In the summer of 1977, Rodney Arcala got the urge to do a bit of traveling. There was a problem, though. Under the condition of his parole, he wasn't allowed to leave the state of California. He unsuccessfully appealed to his parole officer, asking that he be allowed to take a trip back to New York to advance his photography career. How is the parole officer not being like, hey, New uh, LA Times, this guy, uh, he was in prison. How's that not a thing? I mean, I guess because he wants him to be rehabilitated, but he already violated his parole once. And speaking of that violation... Why would his parole officer let him do anything? He went back to prison for two years for parole violation. Parole officers aren't quite as naive as summer camp HR staff, so his request was quickly shot down. However, Arcala was able to convince his minder to let him visit family in the state, because apparently there were still some members of the Arcala clan who were quite happy to keep in contact with their child predator relative. That's, I mean, that's a tough call, though. Because if it's like his parents or whatever, they'd be like, oh, no, I mean, they could be, they got to be like, he's he's reformed, he's he's innocent, something like that, you know, right? Back in his old stomping grounds, free of all the stress of parole officers and criminal records, Akala could finally be himself again, his terrible, murderous self. Not long after his grand return, a woman by the name of Ellen Hover was reported missing. Her father was the owner of the famous nightclub Ciro's in L.A., uh, C-I-R-O, not sure of the pronunciation there. Obviously not that famous to me. So And so the story broke onto the front page of newspapers on both coasts. As detectives went through her personal effects to find out where she might have gotten to, they came across a diary. On the day of her disappearance, she had timetabled an appointment with a photographer. His name was John Berger. B-E-R-G-R, not B-U-R-G-E-R. So, I mean, big brain genius, this guy. Yes, the genius Akala used the exact same alias he was living under when he was busted by the FBI just a few years earlier. Dude, just get a new alias if you're just randomly choosing a name. Why did you choose the same name? Come on! See, this is what happens when you let narcissists dictate the record on their own intelligence. They lie. Still, being a liar is far from his worst flaw. The detectives who made the link were more set on proving him as a murderer. They asked Akala to take a polygraph, which he obviously refused to do, and so he was free to go. It's like, will you take this polygraph and prove your guilt? No. Okay, well, we can't prove your guilt, so you're free to go. What is the motivation for taking the polygraph if you're guilty? There is none. So he's guilty. Otherwise, he'd take the bloody polygraph. At this point, there was nothing but circumstantial evidence to connect him to the case. 
It would be just short of another year before Ellen Hobber's remains were found. Her body was abandoned near the Rockefeller estate of New York City. There was nothing there which could pin the blame on Arcala, but another New York model later came forward to tell detectives that he had taken her to that very same spot for a photo shoot. This was not long before Hobber's body was left there. To say that Bachelor No. 1 had raised some red flags would, by this point, be a massive understatement. So far, we know that he's raped at least two people, beaten one, killed another, and attempted to kidnap one more. That last victim, however, seemed to have been something of a watershed moment in Akama's grisly career. In late 1977, Jill Barkham, an 18-year-old from New York State, was busy planning the rest of her life. She had recently graduated from high school, and like many young people at the time, she saw her future on the sun-soaked Californian coast. That's why she decided to run away to Los Angeles at the end of the year. Not long into her new life, things ended in disaster. Jill was found beaten and strangled to death not far from the iconic Hollywood sign. Her body was in a crouching position with her knees tucked up against her chest. Nearby were a pair of blue pants, which had evidently been used as the murder weapon. Also in December 1977, police entered a home in Malibu, California to find the occupant dead. She had been raped, beaten, and strangled to death. This was Georgia Wixt, a 27-year-old nurse at Sentinela Hospital in Inglewood. Six months later, the body of 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb was found in the laundry room of her apartment building in El Segundo, California. She had been raped and strangled with a shoelace. Beginning to see a bit of a pattern here, aren't we? Almost a year to the day after that, on June 14, 1979, a woman called Jill Marie Parento was also strangled to death in her Burbank apartment. One of the most unsettling parts of this series of killings is that often the bodies were found in carefully arranged poses, as if the photography session had intended when the victims died. Big brain genius killer. Uses the same name, same method of killing, same location, takes photographs. You're going to get busted. I really, really hope. We know your name, so you get that Spoiler alert, right? All of these women were reportedly drawn in by Alcala's charms and looks, which I previously stated were not all that, in my opinion. In the end, it probably came down to his skill for manipulation. This was a fully-fledged predator, capable of easily gaining the trust of the people he met. In the same year as the murder of Jill Parento, another woman was fortunate enough to have missed her photography appointment with Arcala. She later recounted, He was so easy to trust. He had a way of talking to people that really put them at ease. Significantly, it was somewhere between the last and second-to-last killings, which we've mentioned so far, that Arcala made his definitive TV appearance on The Dating Game. Judging purely from that, I can confirm the way he speaks does nothing to put me at ease. Yet he sounds like... He sounds like he's hiding stuff. Peel me. <laughs> You know, he sound, it, it just sounds the way he speaks sounds fake. His co-contestants felt the same. One of his fellow bachelors, Jed Mills, described him as a very strange guy with bizarre opinions. He reportedly told Mills in the green room, I always get my girl. In hindsight, that is pretty damn chilling, but as we know, he never got the girl this time. As I mentioned before, bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw was so put off by Arcala backstage that she refused to go on a date with him, and it's thought that this, this rejection deeply affected him, influencing his crimes to come. Violent egomaniacs typically don't do well with having their delusions shattered. Now, if you have the stomach for it, consider scrolling back to the audio clips from earlier and listening to Arcala's answers again, knowing what you know now. It gets a whole lot creepier when you know the stuff he's been up to. 
Before we move on, I feel like I should say that I understand it might feel a bit disrespectful to dedicate so little time to each of the aforementioned victims whose lives were tragically cut short. But the fact of the matter is that Akala's list of victims is too long to dedicate a full section to each on this show. The story of his next crime, however, warrants a deeper exploration. It would be the one that proved to be his undoing for good. And I think that's okay, Callum, because, I mean... We had the same thing on the Shipman episode. It's often the, you know, something gets these guys caught. And that's the one that is often, you know, the one to be explored. I mean, Harold Shipman, didn't they think he killed 250 people? We can't go into each one. Before we head into the Rodney Akala endgame phase, I should warn you, if the story of his first brush with the law was distressing for you, expect more of the same here. Because less than a week after the murder of Jill Marie Parento, Akala once again set his sights on a minor. This was Robin Samso, a 12-year-old girl from Huntington Beach. On the 20th of June, she was on her way to ballet class riding a yellow bicycle. Her ballet instructor must have assumed that Robin was sick that evening because she never arrived. More worryingly, she never arrived home afterwards. This has got it like, I don't know, I got a kid. This is, yeah, I mean, it's that nightmare territory that you don't like to think about. Her parents already had cause for concern. Earlier in the same day, Robin and her friend Bridget had been sitting by a cliffside near the beach when they were approached by a strange man with wild wavy hair. He was asking to photograph them. One of their neighbors had spotted the odd interaction and came out to challenge the creepy stranger. As soon as she got near, the man rushed off and disappeared. The neighbor, Jacqueline Young, walked the girls back to Bridget's house. After Young explains what had happened to Bridget's parents, Robin borrowed a friend's bicycle and rode off for ballet practice. After Robin was reported missing, it was Bridget who provided a description for the police, creating a photo fit which was released to the public. Any hopes of finding the girl, however, would prove to be in vain. Robin was already dead. On the day of her disappearance, a forestry worker named Dana Crapper was driving down a road which ran off Santa Anita Canyon on the forested outskirts of LA. By the side of the road, she noticed a parked car, a blue Datsun F10, and nearby she saw a man with long wavy hair pushing a young girl towards a creek. Later, she traveled back on the same road and saw the same man. He was now alone, back against a rock, his clothes covered in dirt. This is the point where you expect Anna to call the police, but I'm afraid you've got far too much faith in her. It was another five days before she did anything, returning to the scene to investigate by herself. She found the beaten body of Robin Samso lying in the dry bed of the creek. And then she called the police. Right? Well, no. Like I said, you've got too much faith in Dana Crapper. She actually never reported her findings at all. It wasn't until, what is wrong with you, Dana? Dana, however you say that name. Don't really care. I mean, come on. It wasn't until 12 days after Robin's disappearance when one of Dana's co-workers came across the remains by chance that the police finally got brought to the scene. The lesson here is that if you're ever unlucky enough to find some evidence of a horrible crime, don't do a Dana. Yeah, definitely don't. Call the police, for God's sake. Think of that hero who saved that girl's life at the beginning by following the guy in the car. That guy's a legend. Be like him, whose name we don't know. Don't be like Dana. His arrest. It was perhaps her negligence that meant Rodney Arcala had time to get in contact with yet another young girl just a few short weeks after the death of Samso. By this point, Rodney had gone through a bit of a panic phase. After the slapdash nature of his crime, in which he was spotted both before and after, he decided it might be time to flee. He told his girlfriend he was suddenly dead set on moving to Texas, and cut the long curly hair which had been his signature look for decades. He ended up driving up to Seattle, where he rented a storage locker, giving conflicting stories to his friends and girlfriends. Arcala's Texas dream were never to come true, however. When the police sketch was released to the public, his parole officer recognized him instantly, and the game was up. The young girl he had been talking to at the time was Cynthia Libby, a 16-year-old. 
on their last date, Alcala had told her, I could do anything to you. No one would know. That wasn't enough to put Cynthia off, but before their next arranged meeting, her mother informed her that her oddball Prince Charming was in the papers. He had been arrested for murder. Had he not been caught when he was, it's very likely he would have followed through on his threat. And so the police searched Arcala's house, finding the receipt for the storage unit he rented a few days before. After copying down the data from it, they were able to get a warrant to travel to Seattle and open it up. Using a key found in Arcala's impounded car, they opened the rolling door, and they were shocked at what they found inside. Here was the portfolio Akala had been building up over the years. Reportedly, over a thousand photographs of women, teen boys, and young girls, often nude and in sexual poses. Most worryingly of all, there were many unknown people represented in the images. Did this mean that Akala had claimed dozens more victims than even we had suspected? A full investigation into that angle would follow, but for now, the detectives had something more immediately pertinent to focus on. Inside the locker were a pair of old earrings which had belonged to Robin Samso. Her mother confirmed that she had been wearing them on the day of her disappearance. With that, the police had enough evidence to go to trial. I mean, fortunately, you just need, like, one kid to be murdered to get this guy in the chair, or however they killed people back in the day, or at least life in prison. Is California? No, uh, what's his name? Charles Manson was sentenced to death, and that was a little bit later, right? Or was that before? Oh, who knows? Maybe he's going to get executed. The whole thing seems pretty clear-cut to me, and not just because I've already read a hundred articles on this case in its entirety. Thanks, Callum. Your diligence makes this show. All of that evidence was also plenty to convince a California jury who, in 1980, convicted Arcala of killing Robin Samso. It wasn't a particularly lengthy trial due in part to a bizarre coincidence on the part of the defendant. Despite the overwhelming evidence against him, Bachelor No. 1 chose to represent himself at trial. Needless to say, his supposedly giant intellect did him little good in a room full of proper, well-adjusted adults. In fact, he kind of just embarrassed himself throughout. Consider, for example, his coup de grace, arguing that the park ranger, Dana Crapper, who had now finally come forward to support the case against him, had actually coerced the police into giving a false story while hypnotized. Now, I admit I didn't go to law school, but I'm 99.9% .9 sure that they don't teach hypnotism as a legitimate defense. Atticus Finch, he was not. I'll tell you, Canon, they don't teach hypnotism at law school. When you defend yourself so flimsily, you can expect the worst sentencing possible, and that's exactly what Arcala received, the death penalty. Yay! He was bundled into the back of a police van and unceremoniously delivered to death row, where I'm sure many of you believe he very much belonged. After over a decade of death-dealing, Bachelor No. 1 would now find himself on the receiving end, or so everyone thought. Is he gonna fall into that because California abolished the death penalty? And that's why Charles Manson only died recently, because he was given the death penalty, then the state got rid of it, so he was never executed, even though he was sentenced to death. I get the feeling he might. this might be the, the same time. As it turns out, the conviction was overturned just four years later. Akala had launched several appeals to prove that his conviction was unlawful, as the jury had been improperly informed of his past criminal record during the trial. It seems strange to me that past convictions for assaulting and kidnapping children shouldn't be judged pertinent to the kidnapping and murder of a child, but again, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, I believe this does is sometimes the case, and it's ridiculous, because obviously it matters. Obviously. <laughs> Regardless, it would be another couple of years before a retrial could take place. This was another complete walkover, and Arcala once again found himself on death row. Yay! It seems like he was headed to the gas chamber for sure this time. Okay, so that's how they killed people back then. But amazingly, this one never stuck either. This was partly because Arcala spent much of his time behind bars furiously studying a way to get out of the mess that he'd gotten himself into. I mean, you may as well, right? 
Along the way, he wrote a book entitled You, the Jury, which was supposed to prove his innocence. To which I reply, Shut up, Rodney, you scrotum. You're as guilty as they come. Callum and I absolutely on the same page on this one rodders the second conviction held up all the way until 2001 15 years after it was handed out this is when it was overturned on a technicality related to witness evidence partially down to the court's refusal to admit the alleged psychic hypnosis as evidence you can't be serious <laughs> callum says yes i'm serious i'm like no no this is utterly ridiculous Akala would therefore get his day in court for the third time. Who knows what kind of legal masterstroke he had planned for this run. Whatever new nonsense he had up his sleeve, the California's prosecutor's office had a whole lot more. Unfortunately for Akala, technology had far overtaken his limited wits by this point. Not only was he now being retried for the original murder, but a host of DNA evidence discovered via major advances in forensics throughout the 90s and 2000s had now definitively tied him to other California murders that we mentioned before. Joel Barkham, Georgia Wixt, Charlotte Lamb, and Joel Parento. In 2003, a motion was filed to lump all five murder charges together into one bumper package, which would so surely finally see Rodney convicted for good. It took several years for the motion to pass, taking us all the way to 2006, and it was a further three years before the first day of the trial commenced. Is I don't think the death penalty is on the docket. On the docket, is that the right word? Uh, it's on the. It's not on the table anymore, because Calif California got rid of the death penalty. I'm pretty sure. People listening to be like, Simon, what are you talking about? California still has the death penalty. Executed people all the time. Ah, don't know. Unsurprisingly, Akala acted as his own attorney once again. Why is that unsurprising? It should be surprising. It failed so miserably for him the first time. It's like, what are you doing? Even the free lawyers are better than this. And prison had done nothing to sharpen his legal skills. Some highlights included claiming he was at the theme park, Knott's Berry Farm, when Samso was killed, without any proof, of course, spicing up his closing argument with a snippet from the song Alice's Restaurant by Ario Guthrie, delivering bizarre Q&A sessions with himself using two different voices like a deranged ventriloquist, and presenting his own memoirs as evidence. Why do we let people represent themselves? This doesn't seem like a good idea. It just turns the courtroom into a comedy. Ever the narcissist, Arcala couldn't even resist playing clips from his reality TV appearance on the dating game to prove that he had worn the gold earrings found in his locker at the time. Take a look at the video when you get time. His hair is so long and bushy that his ears are totally concealed, so it's hardly a smoking gun. You big brain genius, Rodders. As for the other four murder charges, he barely even tried to contest them. Alcala just said that he couldn't remember killing the women. He probably hadn't quite expected to ever have to account for them, so his years of planning this mad performance were pretty much focused solely on Samso. Still, are you convinced by his legal pantomime? Absolutely in no way whatsoever, Callum. I didn't think so, but just in case, let me quickly summarize the prosecution side of things. As we already know, the DNA evidence collected against Arcala was substantial, and there was no shortage of witnesses who had seen him acting extremely suspiciously on the day of Sanso's murder. Shockingly, none of the sightings were at a theme park. Of course they weren't. He wasn't there. He was killing people. What's more, autopsy reports revealed that Arcala had taken joy out of toying with his victims, strangling them unconscious over and over again just for the thrill of it, before finally killing them. All these diabolical developments led to convictions on all five counts. The most surprising part, though, was yet to come. When the court moved to the next phase of the trial, deciding whether to hand out the death sentence, the prosecution summoned a surprise witness, Tali Shapiro. Now a grown woman, Arcala's first known victim was able to take things into her own hands and finally face the man who had attempted to kill her all those years ago. He must have seemed much less terrifying in person than in her memories, just a scraggly old idiot putting on a sock puppet show in place of a legal defense. 
Shapiro's testimony contributed to the overwhelmingly strong case for the death penalty, and Akala was sent back to death row in March 2010. I guess after all of that, I was totally mistaken on California death row. Or maybe there's the federal death penalty or something like that. Look, I don't know. I'm going to stop talking about it because I just don't know enough. The pictures and scale of his crimes. That essentially ends the main section of the story of Bachelor Number 1, but I'm afraid there's a grisly epilogue yet to come. See, when you look at the sheer rate that Arcalo was committing murders in the late 70s, it casts a bit of suspicion on his years of relative inactivity. Surely such a prolific predator has more, has more skeletons in the closet, right? Well, we do actually have a pretty good idea of how many. Rather than skeletons in the closet, we found the photographs in the storage locker. I told you earlier that there were boxes upon boxes of photos, but you might not have processed the full implications of that at the time. Oh god, where are we going with this? See, these weren't just images of the known victims. Well over a hundred women, girls and boys were featured in them. This was his life's work, his so-called portfolio, with which he lured trusting victims, promising this charming, successful stranger could turn them into a fashion model. He even had the gall to share some of the explicit photos with his co-workers at the LA Times, claiming that the mothers of the girls had asked him to take the pictures. Please, if you ever find yourself in that situation at work, call the police, for Christ's sake. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons here about, you know, when there are crimes, you should call the police. <laughs> Take that away from today's episode, please. Please. In an attempt to work out the exact scale of Arcala's crimes, the authorities released parts of the photographs to the public in 2010. The aim was to link them to both survivors and cold cases across America. Of course, they came up with quite a few hits. One was the case of Christine Ruth Thornton in Wyoming, who was strangled to death in 1977. Her sister recognized Christine in the images, but her body wasn't identified properly until 2015. A year later, Arcala was charged with the crime. He's yet to face trial for it, as he's reportedly too sick to travel to Wyoming for the proceedings. A woman, just bring the proceedings to him. Just bring the proceedings to him. I think we can manage that. Although he's already on death row. I mean, what do you want? Kill him twice? But I mean, he should be convicted for these horrible crimes. A woman named Monique Hoyt also came forward to report that she had been knocked out and sexually assaulted by Arcala during a photo shoot which featured in the boxes. Arcala himself had bragged about 30 additional victims in the 1970s, one of whom was probably Pamela Lamson. She was assaulted and killed in the Bay Area, although DNA evidence gathered was too degraded to make a clear match to Arcala. It was also alleged that while studying in New York in the early 70s, he spotted Cornelia Crillia, a 23-year-old flight attendant with Transworld Airlines, who was in the process of moving into her new apartment in the Upper East Side. Not long after Cornelia was found in that same apartment, she had been raped and strangled with her own tights. In 2011, Arcala faced trial for this murder and that of Ellen Hover, his other New York victim from earlier. Apparently sick of being slaughtered in court, he decided to just plead guilty and get it all over with. This tacked an extra 25 years onto his death sentence, a largely symbolic move. With all the photos still left unidentified, all the cold case links, and all the new convictions rolling in over the years, it's possible to make a decent guess at the scale of Arcala's crimes. The number arrived at by various authorities involved in the case put it at somewhere between 50 and 130 killings, placing him among the worst serial killers in American history. If you're a bit jaded and desensitized after all of that, I certainly don't blame you. Yeah, this was a brutal one, Callum. When someone has racked up this many horrible killings throughout their life, it all kind of blurs together into one big and awful mess. All that's left to talk about now is how that terrible life is likely to end. We all know that it probably won't be due to the death penalty. California, oh, finally we're getting the answer. <laughs> 
California is currently under a moratorium on all executions issued in 2019, while the state looks at potentially outlawing the practice. Alcala is currently, serving, currently 77 years old, meaning that in any case he'll probably be left to die of old age after a miserable and lonely retirement behind bars. Good. Where he belongs. Although plenty of people happily call him a lady killer, both figuratively and literally, or a criminal mastermind, I'd rather not give him the satisfaction of those big, impressive labels. Instead, I demand a retrial in the court of public opinion. Charge number one, Arcala is not an intelligent man. Charge number two, he's not a charming man. And charge number three, he's far from a perfect ten. Yeah, he doesn't seem that smart, he made loads of mistakes. He's not that charming, he's just creepy. And he's not a perfect ten. He's got that weird hair. I don't even have any hair. So what can I say? But, you know, public opinion were, were, were guilty on one and two. <laughs> Did I just declare him a perfect 10? Whoops. I mean, there's no accounting for taste, but I'm pretty sure if there wasn't a screen between Bachelorette and the contestants, Bachelor number one would have been booted off the dating game within the first few minutes. As for his intelligence and charms, those embarrassing performances in court, reports of his ultra-creepy demeanor, and god-awful chat-up lines say plenty. Callum and I same page again i mean it's not really surprising is it because we're talking about murderers and how we don't like them so we're going to be on the same page often so let's bring it home with my closing argument all i ask is that we dampen the mythology we weave around these kinds of people drop the word genius drop all the celebratory language in fact and call these serial killers what they are narcissistic violent trash yeah i mean it's all too tempting we did one recently on the genius killers leopold and Loeb. might actually have gone out after this one so i don't know if you've seen it it's like they weren't geniuses. It's just a headline that works in the papers, and it's all kind of bullshit. So let's stop it. At the end of the day, they're at the absolute worst of us, so why not treat them accordingly, right? Dismembered appendices. A perennial moaner, Arcala has been hard at work throughout his incarceration to exploit any legal technicality that might defer his death sentence and regain him his limelight and regain him the limelight that he clearly craves. He even tried to sue the prison system in California for not providing him with a low-fat diet. <laughs> Hashtag justice for Rodney. No, no, don't do it. Number two. This wasn't the last time a US dating show had issues with dodgy contestants. In 2018, the show The Bachelorette featured a contestant named Lincoln Adam, who was convicted just days before the premiere of groping a woman on a cruise ship. A year later, a contestant was booted off the same show when his violent past offenses against women surfaced. Two words, people. Background checks. Get it done. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I have been your host, as always, Simon. If you like this, you didn't like this episode. It was horrific. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, if you're listening on a podcast, please do make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently, you can't leave reviews on Spotify, people tell me. So that kind of sucks. Spotify, get on it. Um, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and stuff like that, please leave a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, leave a comment, leave a like. Also, make sure you're subscribed. And thank you for watching or listening or however you consume this show.